You're listening to All Things Video. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed Chrome extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Our team at Bent Pixels uses TubeBuddy to manage channels for major brands like SeaWorld and Live Nation, as well as celebrities like Kevin Hart and Joe Rogan. They absolutely rave about the product, and I'm sure you'll love it too. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. Thanks for tuning in to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm James Creech. I lead growth for Bent Pixels, which is a technology company that powers the world's leading MCNs and next-generation media companies. Today, we're joined by Glasgow Phillips, one of the co-founders of Maker Studios. Glasgow is a man of many talents. He's a television writer, humanist, and award-winning author who recently transitioned to digital media executive and angel investor. He's a master storyteller and a dear friend. Glasgow, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you guys. Nobody really describes me in such glowing terms, so (laughs) best part of the day so far. Take it, take it, and run. I also want to introduce our co-host today, Sarah Ullman, Sully, for those of you who know her. Uh, She is a true force of nature, capable of juggling 50 or more projects at a time and making it look effortless. She moved to L.A. in 2010, worked in traditional entertainment at Radical Media, De Bonaventure Pictures, ICM Partners, before moving over to help develop the network and grow the channel business at Maker Studios. Today, she manages her own digital content and creative consultancy, Master Plan, which works with clients like Adaptive Studios, Jash, Soul Pancake, and the Clinton Foundation, just to name a few. And she somehow manages to publish the Jungle Newsletter in her spare time about the online video ecosystem. So thrilled to have her with us on the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like 50 is an overestimate. (laughs) Over under, I'd say we're under 50 projects a week, but I appreciate that. Thank you. I write a weekly newsletter about the business side of YouTube. Uh, It was originally aimed at film and TV executives, but now I would say about half the audience is um, people interested and working in the digital online video space, uh, and about half of them are working in uh, traditional media, quote-unquote, um, in the studio system and elsewhere. And I'm really excited to be doing this podcast with James and Glasgow. I couldn't be happier to be here. I've known Silly. We've, I've known yes. you for a while, maybe mm-hmm. 2012, 2013. Yes, 2012. Yeah. Maker Studios. Mm-hmm. And James, it's been brief, but yep. very delightful. So James is a rock climber. Uh, That's true. He knows <laughs> a lot about analytics. Yes. He knows a lot about online video. He's mm-hmm. very well traveled. True story? Yes. Oh, yeah, you just yeah, my got family back lived from... in Singapore for five years. And then, yeah, I just was in Scandinavia for two weeks. Incredible. That sounds good. I'd yeah. love to go there in the summer sometime. I mean, I've never been in the winter either, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, I already have kind of sleeping problems. So oh, I might no. as well, no, no, but so I might as well go to a place where right. it's, it's sunny daytime all, the time. all day. Yeah, like, everybody's up. I mean, that's my understanding is everybody is just up the whole time. You kind of. Yeah, yeah, I got to Norway and we would go, we would leave to ride motorcycles at 9.30 at night. We'd come back at 11 and it's still bright as day. What a that life. sounds yeah. so amazing. It was incredible. Leave yeah. to ride motorcycles and yeah. picturing something very cinematic. Under the midnight sun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sounds really good. Exactly. <laughs> so, Glasgow, you studied literature and creative writing first at Brown and then at Stanford, two schools I've never heard of. But uh, growing up, did you always want to be a writer? I, I kind of did. That's what yeah. I wanted to do when I grew up, when I was little. And 
That's something else I've been thinking about. What Since I now have a child, what are the things that help you decide what you want to do and what are the best ways of figuring out how to get to the places you... How do, how do you pick the right places to want to get to and mm-hmm. then how do you get to them mm-hmm. if you decide you want to get to them? So I'm 45 and still working on those things, so I'm trying to figure out how to sh- shorten the process for a new person. It was, yeah, it was what I wanted to do when I was a kid. My dad mm-hmm. was actually in the same program at Stanford that I was in. So that shaped me a lot, and I had a lot of time to read when I was a kid, you know? Just spent a lot of time with books. So between the, those two things, were, that was something that sounded like a good idea to me. Yeah. Going through those, those years when you don't really know what it means to be like a spaceman or have a garbage truck or whatever the thing is that you want to do, turned into a little pattern in your head. So we'll get into some more of your recommendations later, but favorite authors or favorite books maybe that informed your writing career, especially when you were young? Oh, that's interesting. So, I, so back then, the, the the first real engagement with lots and lots of words that I had was on a birthday when I was, I'm not sure how old I was, maybe maybe ten or something like that, and it was Christmas, and I went with my dad to a bookstore in Nashville, and he just it was about a yard of paperback that he got for me that were just books he thought were great. So there's all the stuff that you would think a person might want to read when they're like kind of young adventure stuff that kind of stuff but also some of the you know Hemingway and Fitzgerald and those kind of things can grow into a little bit I actually find that the best books from staff picks in place of the Facebook status like hey everyone what have you been reading lately you trust the experts yeah, yeah. well I mean sure. not even the experts but just a word from another human mm-hmm. who's telling me what I want rather than an algorithm serendipity and discovery have gone missing in some ways even yeah. when mm-hmm. there are lots and lots of dollars devoted to trying to create those in some yeah. way Netflix Amazon all the recommendation engines Spotify what, what have you they don't Quite. Yeah, even YouTube. And YouTube. I think a lot of, of course, I think right? a lot about that actually, right? Like is how to um, you know, a lot of my clients or people are always asking me, well, how do I find good content on YouTube? And it's like, well, you know, you have to find one person that you like or one channel that you like and then you follow the trail of breadcrumbs, but um, is that truly uh, the best way to discover content. And a lot of people say, you know, this is sort of getting into the YouTube, Facebook conversation of it all. But yeah, let's get into it. Then. Yeah, I mean, right? So you discover video content on Facebook because somebody has shared it or you've liked a page or mm-hmm. it's being served to you in some way by your already existing social fabric. But YouTube is a lot, like, I use this example, like, I love my brother's taste in music and mm-hmm. taste in comedy. I have no idea what he's watching on YouTube unless he emails it to me. On Facebook, like, if he shares something or posts something, I see it and it's a personal recommendation. And so discovery on Facebook in some ways has advantages over YouTube because it's it's word of mouth. Mm-hmm. But when you're spending all your time on Google+, Plus, don't you see what you're doing? <laughs> Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that that's a really, um, that's something that I've been writing and thinking about lately Mm -hmm. and would love to The community element. The community element or how people discover new content. Mm -hmm. So it's it's super, getting back to some of the earlier questions you guys wrote to me that tie into this, the notions of going from being an artist to being on the business side of things or being on the side of the rebellion to being on the mm-hmm. side of the Sith Lords, right? Yeah. That all that, yeah. that that transition has been really interesting. I mean, it's turned out to actually be wonderful to, to start thinking about 
content not as a creator but mm-hmm. to think about it kind of systematically and globally sure. and th- the questions that you're asking right now but it is funny when you're on the business side of it that you think about it in a very different way mm-hmm. it's how do you not how do you find good content but how do you make people watch the content that you want them to watch mm-hmm. or how do you aggregate large numbers of eyeballs around mm-hmm. certain pieces of either personalities content brands channels mm-hmm. all the that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and so it's I haven't heard the question of like, how do I find something good on YouTube in a long mm-hmm. time? The yeah. question that you always hear yeah. in our world is, how do I get millions and millions and millions of views mm-hmm. on my content on YouTube? Yeah. yeah. And I guess they're a little bit related, but that's but, a very pure question. How do I find something good? Would you right. agree that the shelf life for content is longer on YouTube today than it is on Facebook? You know what? I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. Oh, ah, okay. Actually, uh-huh. I have to imagine that it is longer because of all the reasons you're for all the reasons you're saying, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if there is a lot of sharing activity, that's going to make things move faster mm-hmm. and also leave faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas on YouTube, there's still, there's just the grind. Yeah, there's no right? library. I mean, you can, you can create shelves on Facebook video, but there's no real library uh, content. There's no notion of a li- of library of content. And also search mm-hmm. is horrific. I think part of that's the fact that there's no monetization for let's get like let's get right to the heart right, of it here right yeah. so so the content's not monetized mm-hmm. for the rights holders or the creators who put it up there any of the people or people who just post pictures of their family and friends they are not receiving a royalty yeah. on their production from facebook and youtube mm-hmm. that's what transformed everything mm-hmm. in my opinion it was when google monetized youtube and the creator program rolled out not that i was watching any of this happen at the time but that was utterly transformative in terms of what it means to be a creative person who mm-hmm. wants to make a living being a creative person and what the strategies and tactics are if you're a business that needs to succeed in the monetization, whether through subscription or ad revenue. There's, it's not a surprise that your newsletter is a huge hit with people in the traditional media business because it, it's completely different, right? Yeah. yeah. And Everyone's desperately trying to run around and figure out how to make money and um, it's I, I think the the exciting part and like the interesting part of working in the space that we do is that no one has quite figured it out yet, mm-hmm. you know. There's no in, in traditional there's um No there's traditional really, media companies have quite figured it out. Yeah, I think both I think both, honestly. I mean there are a ton of companies that are making good money, but nobody's no like, you know, the advertising dollars that you see in T V or like you know, from doing a TV spot. As a creator. Not, Yes, 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 as a creator. It's like, right now you want to be on the platform side if you care about money. Mm-hmm. The idea that three television networks thought they were in fierce competition with one another mm-hmm. is just preposterous when you think about the comp- competition that a seventh grader is entering the second they upload their first video. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I want to take a go at this. It's millions and millions of people doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Uploading, I don't know, I guess, I'm sure there's billions <laughs> of video assets up there now. Yeah, uh, billions and billions, yeah. So right. let's talk about how you found yourself in this world of online video. You you know, were working in traditional entertainment, right around South Park, you know, worked on a lot of Hollywood kind of films for a while. I graduated from college a year late because uh-huh. I was a little slow in 1992. And that's when I thought I wanted to be a novelist. So I'd written a first draft of a short book in college. And a friend of mine got a job at a publishing company who actually has a delightful new publication, sort of new, it's about a year old, called mm-hmm. California Sunday. I love 
You love it? All right, Chaz Edwards. He's my uh, oh my goodness! I just featured one of his articles last week. It's so it's really thoughtful and well written, and I I appreciate it. Okay, it's really he will love hearing that. Uh, So it's affiliated with Pop Up Magazine. It's a really cool thing. Chaz kindly got a job at a publishing house and then bought my manuscript. Uh, when we were already friends, so that uh, so I, I published a book when I was uh, pretty soon out of, out of college, and then went to the Stanford Stegner Fellowship Program. But I dropped out of that because I'm an idiot and wrote for <laughs> magazines for a little bit. And I mean, there's an element of it that was looking down that academic tunnel. But at the time, it was like, well, if that's what you're doing, like you just tunnel down that, and you're not actually out in the world, kind of. So that lost its appeal for I just I, That's yeah. not, not something I ever really did want mm. to be. Now it sounds great. Mm. I got a chance to teach a course at CalArts for uh, a semester. And it was awesome. So I'd love to do that now. So I wrote for magazines. But then in 96, mm-hmm. I was living in Austin. And that was the first tech boom. And my friend Alex was also writing. He was writing for various financial magazines at the time and tech mags. So mm-hmm. Wired was like super hot right then. He mm-hmm. was writing a story for Wired about a new kind of company called, there were naming companies mm-hmm. that were naming other companies. And so we were on the phone and he told me, he's like, dude, I got paid more to sit in this creative session naming something than I'm getting paid by the magazine to write an article about naming company. So like my research paid me better than my work. And uh, we, there's, we, I don't think either of us knew the term barrier to entry, but there mm-hmm. was not one, right? Mm-hmm. To that, just like, I named stuff. What do you, okay. So we went into business right then, and it was actually a great time to be doing something like that because there were all these companies that were being funded, uh, venture-back companies that were being formed. That had no name. They didn't have a they name. they needed to rebrand. Didn't have a name. Okay. I mean, sometimes they had a business plan. They needed to secure a URL. It already felt like everything was taken, right? Like, I don't think any of the companies that we... I don't think any of them are in existence now, but it was a, it was a good little run. Right. Actually, supported the online video stuff. So I moved out here to the West Coast, and another friend from high school had a little digital media company that was certified renegade American product or crap. Okay, um, <laughs> no, crap. so crap TV was our was our URL. Yeah, and it it was in some ways looking back, I'm like, oh, we had almost all the pieces. We didn't have all the pieces. We were making little shorts, making making content. We were having what started out as film festivals-ish. So this is before there were viral videos, really. There were videos that people would send, but they had to be sent via... Actually, no, it was just pictures early on. Like, those tiny little clips. Like, what would now be a GIF? GIF or GIF? What do you guys go with? I like GIF, oh, but God. I... I do too, but I think... Apparently, it's controversial. Yeah, yeah, GIF yeah. is what it's supposed to be, but I like wow, GIF, too. Yeah. All right. So, anyway. GIF, to me, is peanut butter. I don't know. I can't get my... Well, it's also, like, right. a GIF is, like, a small gift... Well, these were not all gifts. Some of these <laughs> were, yeah. you did not want coming in right. uh, over the door sill. Yeah. But it was it was early days for, for moving video around mm-hmm. on the internet. So people would mail us VHS tapes mm-hmm. to then show at a film festival that we would have, which was really much more like a party. So we did some here in Los Angeles. We did uh, an event called Lap Dance in Park City in conjunction, unauthorized conjunction with Sundance, um, <laughs> and we started having serving video because Jason wanted to do something called "Can You Dig It" in camp in conjunction with camp, and and so he actually did make it over there, but there was no screening venue or something. I can't remember what, but our what we then called a webmaster, Joel and Banky, and uh, his 
uh, partner, Martha Clayton, figured out how to encode video, put it up mm-hmm. on the internet, and we were also working with some another guy named Farrell Timlake, really bright, hilarious guy who has an interesting adult video company in San Diego that in some ways pioneered the YouTube thing. I'll come back to that if you guys want. It's very, very interesting. So anyway, we had video before anybody, really, uh, by virtue of working with somebody who's an adult video, mm-hmm. and they had the technology, and having some smart people who came out from Boston in a van with some cats, and mm-hmm. were just kind of lucked into working with. I couldn't even believe that people were getting these huge sums of venture financing. I'm sure there were good reasons to do it, but because I didn't even understand how you could possibly make money. The idea then that we were pursuing was to try to get a little bit of audience so that then when we took it somewhere to try to set up a show, we could say, like, 10 people like it already, right? Yeah, like, like, right. Right? As opposed to just going in sure. cold, right? And it was it was a ton of fun, and we kept the lights on there by making content for some of the venture-funded companies at the time. So uh, Pop.com was at DreamWorks and Imagine Joint Venture. And so that paid for all the other nonsense. So, Do you still have those videos? I would love to see those videos. Is there going to be a lap dance 2015? Uh Or 2016, I guess. I'm sure he would spin it up, although I I think for a little while he he was unable to go to the state of Utah. Mm. So I'm not sure if that's been... been Honestly, you know. Although that, no, I'm teasing. Um, So who knows? But yeah, it was really fun. It was a really wild, exciting time. So Uh the only reason that I became a television writer was because that content bubble burst Mm -hmm. there it wasn't sustainable right you could not not enough people had broadband it was very hard to figure out how to get a vhs tape and turn that into something somebody could watch you know had been encoded uploaded you had there was no youtube or anything like that then to watch it people had to have both a pretty good connection and they had to install these little plugins media players you couldn't just watch stuff so Anyway, that all came unspooled in a pretty spectacular way in uh, 2001. And so, luckily, uh, through Jason, actually, I was already friends with people who work in television, so mm-hmm. I got a job yeah. in South Park, and they uh, kindly let me work there for a little while. Can you tell me about the moment when it all, like, fell apart and you're like, well, I guess I have to find something else to do, and then that transition into South Park? Did you think that you would ever come back to online video and... What were your expectations? So I definitely remember it well. Actually, so the second book that I wrote is called mm-hmm. The Royal Nunsuch, and mm-hmm. uh, it's actually about that boom and bust. And uh, it was a it was a crazy, fun, interesting time. And maybe some other people knew what they were doing, but I certainly did not. It was just, you know, blundering around, trying to figure it out. I did not know that I would come back to it. But Danny's app is the reason I did. Uh, he so Danny, who's one of Maker's three real founders, Danny, Pam, and Lisa, and the architect, really. How did you meet Danny? So Dan, so so Danny, I met through. Okay, so there's a guy named Timmy the Woodsman who's no longer with us, who was like on this earth. He's or? no longer on this earth. Timmy's oh, passed away. Gotcha. So Timmy's passed away. <laughs> so Jason went to Burning Man with a person named Timmy the Woodsman and Danny was shooting video of Timmy who was sort of a street performer, dancer, con man, hilarious person. Um and so that that's how I met Danny. So he was very very young at the time and mm-hmm. he was a fantastic shooter, editor, 
producer. Like he would just go out with what was then the the kind of hot new camera, Canon XL1 mm-hmm. was the first camera. I think it had swappable lenses or something. Like I was just, I had no idea. I was like, well, great, looks good to me, man. Thing looks cool. Yeah. And it was effectively uh, the entire production department basically back then. When everything came unglued and uh, I left and got a job, the Danny, uh, I mean, he's he's told this story a million times. He's been in the papers and stuff. So Danny wanted to raise some money so he could buy more of the then new Mac towers and more cameras. And so he transported some drugs from one state to another state, was arrested, and then had to go to prison for a couple of years. You know, serious stuff. So, mm-hmm. so when Danny got out, he was living over in Hollywood and couldn't really go anywhere except for his apartment and work. I think it was valeting cars or something like that. So then you you had this very strange situation where in the between it's like two thousand five, two thousand six, maybe you've got a really talented, really smart, ambitious, and charismatic filmmaker who can't leave his house except to go to work. And so he was immediately using YouTube like crazy, even before it was monetized. And I, at that time, was still feeling so burned from the, you know, the the first time I was like, whoa, man, you know, it's really nice having actual jobs in television from time to time, bring you lunch and stuff. Like, it's totally not hard compared to building businesses out mm-hmm. of nothing that everybody else thinks is a bad idea. Um, so... It was only later that I was able to put all the pieces together about that, like that. In some ways, his options were were narrowed mm-hmm. because of the home confinement. I was just like, at the same time, all these ingredients kind of came together in one place. He was he knew more about moving audience on YouTube than mm-hmm. anybody, mm-hmm. including people who, who uh, one really smart woman named Zahava Levine that I went to college with uh, was counsel for YouTube and eventually brokered that negotiated that sale to Google. Mm-hmm. So by two thousand nine, uh, that's when Daniel was pulling it together. I had the really great good fortune to be living within a few blocks, otherwise I never would have been running into them, and uh, was privileged to be part of the first, you know, 15 or whatever people who were doing the thing that eventually was Maker Studio. So you were working in online video right at, when it was nascent, right? 2001, earlier. And yeah, 98 to 2001. 98 to 2001. And then, you know, you went and worked in, in traditional entertainment and had met Danny, but he wasn't working on those projects necessarily at the time, but kept in touch. And then ultimately, 2005, 2006, as he was kind of getting back into things under house arrest and working on this project. Yeah, 2007, maybe? Yeah, like, Later than that? Okay. Yeah. So by 2009, you decided to get involved, and this was still happening in Danny's house. Yes, there was a, there was a house on Grand, and a number of people had moved out from different places. So Shea Butler had moved out from Idaho, yeah. and Derek Jones, what a day Derek, had moved out from Texas. What was the tipping and, point where YouTube is serious, I can move from Idaho, I can leave Texas, come to L.A. and pursue my dream of being an online video creator, not, you know, being in, in television shows or movies? Right, so I, that, w- that was something that I was... A little surprised to see, but we'd actually uh-huh. been through something a little bit similar to that, which totally blew my mind at the time when we had our little website, Crap TV. Some people just showed up from like Belgium, other states, like people wow. we didn't know who liked the content and were participating on the bulletin board. So I don't know all the backstory of how all these people who uh, were the, the first creators uh, all got pulled in in different ways. And there was a schism fairly early on mm-hmm. um, 
between various camps that to me I was like oh, these I've just met everybody like mm-hmm. I didn't really have a, a horse yeah. in any of the races right sure. and my function was just to be somebody who had a job in TV one time to help add legitimacy or because you had perspective oh, no, no, no 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 was... really just to, not so much to uh, for either of those at the time people were making videos and then they would wake up in the morning and not know what they were going to do to make their next video. And sure. it's just incredible pressure. Like, the coming back to competition, networks were not competitive with each other mm-hmm. compared to what it means to be one of a million people in equal com- equal competition. Uh, some of whom have more resources than others and so forth. So so just thinking about format instead of what should I do today. And some people were, like, were already thinking about this kind of thing. Early um, on, was it... Um, so, you know, now it's kind of an accepted... you either have a personality-focused channel or a format-based channel. Oh, what yeah. were some of the earliest learnings about the platform that may or may not be still true? Okay, that's a great question. So the other people who are around, Kasim, hi, I'm Ron, Will Watkins, and Lisa Nova, of course, I'm trying to remember. And so some people were already doing formats. So Kasim was doing California On already, but he'd only done a few of them, I think. Somebody else who was there, so Ezra Cooperstein, who later went on to uh, start full screen with George, a uh, really bright guy, was had been at Current TV and then was at a uh, branded entertainment company called Initiative. And so Ezra and I were the two people who had not been YouTubers. Mm-hmm. Everybody was trying to figure out exactly those things. Like, how do you do this in a sustainable way? The, some of the early early thoughts were, and these are still in play, right? If we talk about some of the stuff that's happening right now with some of the new platforms mm-hmm. where influence is being brokered, how do you set a reasonable floor for working with advertisers? Because they would call one person, say, I'll give you a hundred bucks to reach your million subscribers. And if you're like, ah, it's not that much, they get somebody else to do it for 50, right? And there was no bottom to it, right? So part of it was about unionizing-ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. And part of it was about trying to figure out how to do it sustainably and professionally. Because, and that was something I loved about almost everybody there was that they had taught themselves everything as opposed to having been taught it, which is such a different thing, right? I find it really inspiring that people who are masters of something that nobody else even knew was a thing to master. Mm-hmm. And so the things that we now call best practices or what have you, right, that are now in the YouTube creator playbook, those that was being figured out then, not mm-hmm. by YouTube, but yeah. by creators, right? Like a lot of the stuff, I mean, I've had some hilarious situations where people are telling me stuff that's in the playbook that was, you know, it's questions that were asked by people at YouTube of creators, mm-hmm. and then is in a wonderful way, put in an orderly document and then presenting it back. Just a funny circle, right? Right. So, what the, was the relationship with YouTube like at the time? It was early in the partner program, mm-hmm. and I just didn't even really know what that was. Like at first, I was like, "Dude, I'll make you a puppet show and drop it off once a week." That was my initial idea for how to work together. Yeah. And I remember Danny saying, "This is a, kind of doesn't work like that, right?" Uh, good, but also difficult because it's a major organization, right? Already, it's, that is run at that time by mostly people who were like, who's making and watching all this stuff? So there was a few people there who did, but not that many people. And they were then awarding 
little grants. I'm not even sure if it was at that time in advance against advertising revenue to be earned, but little grants that were really important to a hand-to-mouth creator, right? And so it was a very important relationship, but also a difficult one. I think you know it has been the whole time. Were there any things, uh, any best practices that were established early on that are no longer true today? Well, I don't know about that, but I, well, sure, yeah. Back then, there was a front page. So, so YouTube homepage back then was a bunch of poster stamps of videos about things in different categories, and. If you hit the homepage, then you would have all the view. You had the, you were one of I don't know, twenty, fifty, how, however many tiles there were, of anybody who went to YouTube.com and was like, "What's up on YouTube.com?" And it was this incredibly powerful engine for for continued viewership, where influence could be really aggregated quickly and sustained, and rather than there being Ultimately, the Cosmic Panda, that art change in the architecture, where once you start watching YouTube, you are then watching your YouTube. It's already, the second you watch one video, it's already figuring out what you might want to watch next, and this kind of, this, this, that, and the other, right? Like, you'd have to clear every cook, you'd have to buy a new computer for yeah. not to know who you were, yeah. right? So back then, if you could hit the homepage, then you were golden. It was very competitive at the top. But it was very, very hard to break past that if you didn't have... So it was all about hitting the homepage. So yeah, some of the things that were ways to game that are no longer best practices. Mm -hmm. Like mislabeling your content into a category that you knew wasn't that competitive, even if it wasn't that, because you could win in there. And that would bop you up onto the top of that list. And then if you won on that list, if you're at the top of that, it would pop you to the front page. Eventually get popped off. So that was... All this stuff that now is like, oh yeah, of course, that's what you do. At the time, I remember, you know, Danny explaining a lot of it, that influence creates influence, right? Working with other people who have large audience, that's how you get large audience. It's very, very hard to do it by yourself. And not that many people understood that at the time. Uh, Really, very few people understood that at the time. And so that's why we were able to... I say we, when I wasn't doing that part of it, right? Um, Although later I became very interested in that, uh, more interested than in the content itself. And some of the stuff starts to look crazy when it gets like put into a PowerPoint presentation, like the hub and spoke model that I'm sure you've seen slides of, right? Mm -hmm. But that was the beginning. So there was, first it was called the station Mm -hmm. and it was a chance. And this is where I was like, oh, I think I am going to do this, not like trying to staff onto another TV show right now. When back at the very beginning, there was nothing on the channel except for a coming soon video about the station. And in 30 days, it was an empty channel by the end of 30 days, because all of those people who I didn't know were famous, um, but seemed perfectly nice, told their subscribers to subscribe to it, have 500,000 subs at the end of a month with a trailer on it. And so we get used to these big, huge, crazy numbers now, but that's a cable footprint. And so that was what it looked like to me. I was like, what? That was free? A cable footprint? That was a transformational moment. After a lot of slugging it out, there was a little bit of financing. And so I was able to come back and make a little bit of money. But growing that network of video game channels was a big 
change of pace. Was that your uh, mandate to, no, to well, grow the game station? No, oh. I, n- not at all. Right. And in fact, I was like, I, that's not what I do. Later on, I became kind of interested in that kind of thing, but no. So there was a there there were two things that had that were happening right then. Ray William Johnson, who even back earlier was just still crushing it towards uh, 5 million subs. And he had been at the collective for like, I don't know, a week or something. They didn't have a cartoon on air for him yet, mm-hmm. which is if you work in television, like it's very hard to get things on air. And so I came back and was able to get a cartoon, a music video series on its feet really quickly and economically. Um, and so Ray was about half the views. So Ray left Collective as yeah. a result of you putting this cartoon this together. This is my favorite me. Martian. Well, yeah, your favorite. Your favorite. Right, right. Sorry. But there, no, there's an old TV show called My yeah. Favorite Martian. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, so Equals 3 was, was basically half the views. I don't know what it was, 50 million views a month at the time. And then there were these gaming channels. So video game content previously had not been really monetizable. But at the time, it was very hard to get your content monetized sure. if you were using somebody else's IP, if it was in the video game space, because YouTube and Viacom, but also in a general way, all major rights holders had been at loggerheads for seven years, right? And YouTube was trying to be a, you know, they're like, we're a good player. We're not just a place where Daily Show and South Park are monetized by hundreds of thousands of people who didn't make them. So anyway, if you wanted to monetize your video game content, you had to join a network because the networks were the only... Entities with a CMS, right, mm-hmm. that could take on the potential liability of... Yeah, that bubble. That bubble. When I first started at Maker, you know, the, the reason to for a gaming channel uh, to join was because you could monetize and, and you were in a copyright bubble. Because oh, that kind of bubble. Yes, I thought that... you meant the other kind of bubble that oh, pops. Oh, oh sorry, yes. sorry. Well, it did. I mean, it eventually did when I was there. They, everyone, they, you know, YouTube went back through and did like a really intense, remember mm-hmm. that? There um, was... Like, 2013. A great cleansing. Yes, do you remember that? Oh, <laughs> yes. God, that was the apocalypse. Yeah. Yes, there was a right. crazy, crazy month there where, like, all those views disappeared from every CMS, and everybody's like, what? Um, but then, I think, you know, it's obviously the right all thing to strikes. do, so it's stabilized, right? Yeah. Anyway, that suddenly created this this market condition where a bunch of things happened at the same time. You got these, then this is what got really interesting, it, where I became suddenly interested not in like well i want to make a really good video that's a minute long like i still like doing that kind of thing like like creative things but it was fascinating to suddenly have any kid with a 400 dollars pc and a 30 dollars game suddenly be able to create content that looks like high quality cg animation and I, previously i'd had a job at dreamworks animation as a writer and it was like a million dollars a minute or something crazy to no that's not accurate but if you think about like shrek cost a million dollars a minute so yeah. you're to witnessing the democratization of this content firsthand. In such a radical yeah. way, though, that it's hard to even... Yeah. Yes. It wasn't like a, a gradual democratization. It was suddenly like every 14-year-old has a free tool that all they have to do is yell at it and press print. And they can just upload that and it's instantly distributed globally and it's monetized by default. Like, that's just a very, very, very big change from... There's DreamWorks and Pixar, and that's who can make animation. Do you think the Rooster Teeth guys in Red versus Blue um, were like the first? Pe- were they the first ones to actually create a narrative format using as as the I, cinema? As far as I know, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they um, 
Yeah, that was like that was years before this, really. Yeah. And it was, was even before YouTube, but um, they, I thought, I found them as kind of a really interesting example of the first people who were putting narrative structure mm-hmm. to Machinima. Yeah, like, you know, some people and using it for something different than it's in, it's like exactly right. They're, they're, some of those things are really good. They're, actually, they are actually like quite existential and like thoughtful and and yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, I actually when I back that was when I was still writing for television, so my agent repped them also, but I didn't I didn't wasn't really familiar with their content or anything, yeah. that kind of stuff. I just knew he did some video game stuff. Yeah. So that was a transformational moment, right? When all of these people were suddenly able to create content, when they had to join an MCN, but mm-hmm. they couldn't have their content monetized. And I've never been really into video games, so didn't even really know that people were that interested. I mean I knew that people played a lot of video games and that it was a bigger industry than the movies and all this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. But that explosion was bananas. So, I mean, YouTube now is half video games, half music, right? Right. But back then, Maker was half Ray and half video games. But at the center was this studio idea that was where it started of, like, let's all help each other make things, make content. But that's hard. That's actually really, back to something we were saying earlier, it's really hard to make good content and make money doing it because it's there's so many people in who have entered the market now. So that central studio business... The idea of being a place where creative people come together and make content was has remained important as an idea, but it's a very challenging I, business. I, I would love to say something a little bit controversial Knock here, yourself out. <laughs> which is like, you know, there's this concept of Maker and a lot of the other MCNs um, as a, a studio, as a content studio. But by the time that I arrived, I think that there were... Um, a few verticals in which they were consistently producing content, but there was no At a consistent loss. Right, correct. Mm -hmm. At a consistent loss. But there was no... um, The actual content studio side had largely disappeared and was stuck in this um, bureaucracy. I just am so interested in the idea of like this identity that you're a studio and that we make things here. We are maker. But... It didn't feel like we were making very much at all. So um, we, at the beginning, it definitely was that. Right. It's just so hard, right? So at the beginning, everybody had been making things by themselves. Mm-hmm. Just coming together, like, you hold the camera while I do stuff, and I'll hold the camera while you do stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that idea leads to the audience sharing via collabs, right? Which mm-hmm. isn't something you do in other media. But that was the core of it, right? Like, it, that was right at the core of it. After doing... Your favorite Martian with Ray. That kind of basically created a kind of case study for building IP value by matching influence to a small amount of capital and expertise. When I think so, the studio system is seeing a resurgence in certain MCNs, I'd say Awesomeness is doing an interesting job there. Okay. Uh, and there are others who, who are actually seeking to build IP. And CBS and do all along has been pretty, you know, pretty Yeah, very focused on intellectual property, yeah. et cetera. Uh-huh. Whereas Maker, for better or for worse, call it what you will, looks like an ad network today. So the last thing I guess I want to further deconstruct before we, we move on and jump into the future and kind of yeah. your current projects, you mentioned the early founding team at Maker, and then you came on more of a co-founder and were brought on an SVP of Creative. Talk to me a little bit more about what that meant and what you were charged with. Way back? Yeah. Oh, it was so, it was so ad hoc. It was the only way it could exist mm-hmm. because it didn't make sense financially yet, mm-hmm. right? There was just, there was not enough revenue for everybody to really make enough money. So people had to just kind of do stuff to try to try to keep it rolling at mm-hmm. the time. So the different things that I did, like it changed as as time went on and as 
So when I came back, I was doing that with Ray, making that cartoon, mm-hmm. which really the only way to do that is to outsource it at that those budget levels. Mm-hmm. So I can't even really remember what your question was, but oh, the no. different roles, different yeah. roles, right? So so running an animation department, which is the most expensive kind of content you can make, so the least YouTube friendly, but it can really travel and it can have great IP value because you can sell shirts and do all that kind of stuff that you do with cartoons that are hard to do with personal personal brands and. The reason that I got interested in some of the other stuff, well, it was clear to me and maybe some other people, but people just weren't acting on it, that there were a lot of people watching YouTube who were not 13 years old, right? So there's this huge population that eventually the kind of whiteboard drawing became called the iceberg of people who are not being recognized as audience. They're babies. They're babies, right? (laughs) And you've got the big players on the sidelines the like Nickelodeon is part of Viacom, um, Cartoon Networks. They got to do Adult Swim stuff on YouTube, but not really Cartoon Network stuff. So the biggest audience on YouTube is not being served by any of the biggest players who traditionally serve that audience. Mm-hmm. So it was this massive opportunity to start programming to to kids, and so made a sideways move, like trying to keep that adult big kid stuff alive. But it's so expensive to make animation compared to making almost anything else. We needed more content than we could afford to make. So that's when I suddenly, I, that was probably a transition from being on the creative side to being on the business side. It's like, well, how do you get content you didn't make? Yeah. So licensing in old cartoons, basically, on RevShare. Suddenly we had more minutes of content that was searchable to a certain extent and so mm-hmm. forth than you could possibly make for no money, just old old TV. And so that's how I got, that's how I got interested in that side right. of it. To fast forward, Maker, for most people who are probably listening, but for those who aren't familiar, had a huge transaction, right? May 2014, acquired by the Walt Disney Company for $500 million guaranteed in cash and a $450 million earnout. What was your exit point from Maker Studios? When did you say, my work here is done, on to the next? Um, pretty soon after that, you know, because it really was done. And I think, you know, it's a personality thing. I'm much more comfortable when most people think it's a bad idea, whatever it is that <laughs> I'm doing, right? And I don't have a card that I swipe to get into a building or any of that kind of stuff. It just gives me kind of the willies. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic outcome. And tons of credit is due to tons of people who are not me or any of the bus who were there at the beginning, right? And what do you think about... Maker Studios in the past year, year and a half, and the trajectory they're on now with the Walt Disney Company. I have honestly, I haven't been following it that closely. Okay. I, I'm, but now I've been, yeah. Just Tell been, us about now. So spinning up something new. Um, really excited about it, and I can't. I, mysterious. Yeah, yeah, it's not that uh, not that mysterious. In the course of that transition from making content to being on the business side of it, when basically we didn't have enough money to make more cartoons, had to get some free cartoons, right? So that's getting content that's already been made for free. Then the sort of next level of that is this idea of combining lots of human, lots of people, talent, whatever you want to call it, creators, with lots of rights that they can work with that make creation easy. So it's not, what should I make today? It's just, I could play this video game and yell at it for an hour, or I could sing this list of songs that I already know and love, and I don't have to think of a song, I don't have to write a song before I can sing one, right? Um, so this idea of kind of systematic creating systems for people to, to create lots and lots of content just got me thinking about, you know, what 
keeps the lights on, right? Because at first it was totally in the dark to me when I was like a kid out of college. I was just like, oh, I hope somebody writes me a check for something I do. But I didn't okay. really connect it to uh, the system in the same way that now we're all so intimately connected to it. Like the idea that you can see your own CMS reports from YouTube and you can see how many people viewed something and then how much, you know, how much of that money gets sent to you. It's crazy if you've ever seen an accounting statement from before there was a YouTube CMS, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see some more changes, right? We're obviously in a time of like massive cataclysmic for some people change in terms of the way content is monetized. So the advertising model used to be broadcast, basically just send it out through a few channels that everybody's exposed to. And you don't have that much competition. It just goes out to everybody. And it's worth a lot of money because it goes out to everybody. And that has now changed to, I mean, we finally saw this thing tip, right? Where now digital advertising dollars are bigger than broadcast. That was a, that's a big, it's now the number one category. And ultimately what that means is that it's all targeted to humans based on demographic and behavioral information that we have all allowed many different parties to aggregate about us and then to sell and resell and resell and resell, right? And the new venture I'm kind of putting together is, is, is based on turning this whole thing upside down. Creator human beings are cable networks now. Not digital platforms. Humans are distribution networks. Like if you think about the kind of digital footprint of a major influencer, like any of the lovely young people we all know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, they are a multi-platform distribution network. Anyway, I just, th- I just think that's been incredibly interesting to see the rise of these companies like Niche.co, those bought by Twitter mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, some other, you know, interesting ones. Instafluence just bought by Maker. There you have it. So to close out, I'd love to do just some quick rapid fire questions. Talk about, sure. uh, yeah, just some, some of your recommendations, some other things that you see coming in the future. Uh, one of the questions I always love to ask people if you were in this, I guess you don't have to answer because you were working on this already, but if you were to start a business in the online video space today, what would you do? So I'm not, it's not, I'm not in the online video space. Okay. So, so, so interesting, helpful, interesting, okay. which is totally terrifying to me, yeah. right? Cause like, finally I know about something about something that other people want to know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like, that, that was great. Um, <laughs> hilarious. So I think we're in an interesting time, right? We've got mm-hmm. all these platforms that aren't monetized. And then I think, Twitch and Vessel are also really interesting with their different models. So Twitch, platforms. live streaming, and then Vessel with windowing content, uh, or short-form content, right? Short-form for... content, but and yes, you're right. Th- those are key differences, but the, the, the really key difference, we've got things like Twitch and Patreon that let me pay you, basically. There's the platform takes More part of it, but, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very much this affinity I have for you. And then there's this notion of paid premium, short-form, which Vessel is based on, and I'm bullish. I mean, I'm bu- bullish. Basically, I'm bullish on everything that's the future mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything that's the past. Is I think the opportunity windows are shorter and shorter and shorter, and there and there these are things that haven't been fully explored yet. And there's lots of smart people working on them right now. So I think we'll see really cool stuff mm-hmm. in in both of those. What would you say are the top three trends impacting the video space today? Increasing liquidity, right? More and more transparency and liquidity can't believe I talk in words like that now. Uh, but that's that's what we're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Where where it's possible to 
see what all the other transactions are that are happening and define the right value. And so, so that decreases margin for people who used to have all the cards. They used to be able to say, well, where you can, there's two other networks. This is before I was having anything to do with any of this stuff, but, but now it's so, so that that's definitely happening. And I think it's, it's mostly good. It's also, it can be challenging to make that high quality content that needs to be funded just because it needs to be funded because it's awesome right? and not always have to shoot for the big metal. Right. So, but people are figuring out ways to do that. And I think that's totally cool. So that, I think that. There's this conversation that's happening around personal data now that's been around. I mean, we got, we're in a crazy time, right? 21 million Americans, myself included, who have had federal background checks in the last, whatever, I think it's like a decade or something, 15 years. Uh, I had to get one for the record, not because I was in trouble so I could <laughs> teach some kids to read. Uh, I was like to volunteer for something, yeah. right? Like all of that is now yeah. gone. Like it's on the loose. Yeah. So that's bananas. And we're thinking more and more about privacy and personal data, but I think that the conversation is about to move towards what it's really about and the reason that, not what it's really about, but the reason people steal it is money, is it's not just about privacy, it's also, it's you. It's like, it's your information and it's your history, your, for everything from your, your, your DNA to your medical history to your purchasing habits to where you live to like everything about you it's you it's yours and other people may have a license to it but i think we're about to start recognizing that those are those things are ours but the idea that and i should be able to like buy and sell who you are without talking to you about it is Mm -hmm. preposterous i think and i think we're about to kind of go through a moment where we where we suddenly realize that that. and that's humanizing Mm -hmm. so that's where it comes back Mm -hmm. to like that's we're people. So there's an inherent conflict there. You're saying there's increased liquidity and monetization value of just about anything, right? There are marketplaces where or the data Uber, and information right? is getting or, bought and sold. Oh, at sure. the same time, this personal or sensitive data about us, it needs to be effectively controlled. Yeah, I think we all we all are about to kind of wake up to where it's happening right now. It's like even you know, yeah. New York Times. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not like this is crazy, like yeah. tinfoil hatchet. It's like, this is, it's crazy times right now. Mm-hmm. I think about that every time. Every time you um, use the OAuth for Facebook, you right? don't even think about it half the time. You don't even think about it, and what you realize that you're doing, like you know, I've OAuthed my ClassPass um, subscription, for example, which tells Facebook now uh, all the gyms that I go to. Yeah, it, it's bananas. Like some of them, you look at and they just put too many things, and you're like, oh, I'm not doing. I'm not installing yeah, that app, right? No, thank but if you. it's like five things, mm-hmm. including like everybody you know, everything you do, and like yeah. you know, all these other things that are these huge global grant yeah. mm-hmm. it's a look we get great value from some yeah. of these products that we get for free but yeah. it's a it's a crazy time and so exactly what you're saying yeah. i think is about to last question i want to ask you what advice do you have for someone working in traditional entertainment today that wants to make the move hmm. to digital oh, that's a great question are they like me or are they kids Whoever. Like, like you you, anyone working oh, in, you in Hollywood, like you know, in New York, in publishing, television, film, record label, how do right. they make the move to online or to digital? It's a great question. I mean, you have to, right? Because there's like this notion of like digital is like, well, what else is there really, right? Like even my traditional TV is digital. Like, see, I feel like there's, there's like a group of, there's people who are, they're okay. They're on the island, right? Like it's still going to be there for the next 
10 or 20 years or whatever, right? And they're okay, but these middle transitions are really difficult. You have to actually get into it if you want to do it. You have to, like, start actually watching things and tweeting. Like, there's a lot of things I don't even do. Like, I... Seriously, like I've tweeted like five times, I think. Well, it's the transition of the island from the hub to a spoke, right? It's like mm. yeah, it, you know, and that's that's what people. And you'd be actually surprised. I mean, a lot of my audience are um, studio executives and people who have young assistants sometimes or it, it, talent agents, um, and a lot of people email me and and they've just had their heads down reading scripts and so it's it's very Jesus. difficult like even yeah you know For movies that never get people, made right, right you it's know? crazy so it's, so so it's, they gotta they gotta yeah. do it you got, i mean i think it's pretty natural it's like weird to me honestly when i meet people who are just out of college or something and they're like so what's up with digital media i want to like get work at a movie studio <laughs> where do uh, we like, begin what are you doing yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. I mean I'm sure it's great and, and like 10 people it'll work out great for but most other people it won't you know I've had a lot of catastrophic failures in my life right of things that mm. just didn't go well and I've, then I've had some like great luck and uh, been in the right place for a couple of things were there any commonalities between the times what you achieved success and were lucky no no, or you, were Honestly, you, you, it was no. just a habit that you no, were putting just, yourself in so many situations that ultimately you just got to keep successful. swinging, right? Like yeah. you just got to keep trying stuff out and doing mm-hmm. doing things that interest you. And at the end of the day, like that's you know, I don't have any great career advice except for just mm-hmm. you know, lean into things that you think could be interesting. I guess because they might not work out, so they might as well be. But it sounds like you're saying that's okay. Right. That's okay. Right. Yeah, it's like, I mean, like, you, you learn. Know, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. you get that yeah. experience. And it's different from, like, where you should allocate your investment right. dollars right. or whatever, well, right? But no, just, like, no. do something you want to do. And your online video experience in, say, 2001, before, and then shaped and impacted what you were going to do in 2009. And oh, my gosh, yes. So, yeah. And I never would have let, I never would have known there was anything to leave for. Or known that it was different. Well, Glasgow, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find out more about you? Honestly, I or guess. maybe they shouldn't because of your whole data yeah. sensitivity. <laughs> no, Are you I, on the no, internet? Oh, uh, I'm, not that, I'm not that social. They anyway, can look up your five tweets. LinkedIn me. I see your LinkedIn. Check I see out you my on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. They can read uh, your books. They can read my books. That's yeah. great. Let's yeah. plug yeah. those. All right. Yeah. So Absolutely the Royal Nonsuch. Yeah. Yeah. Shiny Adidas tracksuits and the death of camp. Whoa. So... Yeah, that's its own. It's its own. I have it's to know what that's... I feel like Shiny Adidas tracks is like, that makes me think it's about Run DMC. Like, what, what are we Run talking? DMC comes up. <laughs> okay, Run there DMC we go. comes up in that. So actually, it was... That was just the idea of... Oh, oh just buy the book. Buy the book. Yeah. Okay, we'll yeah. And finally, Tuscaloosa, winner of the Commonwealth Club, silver medal for first novel. Yeah. That was just what I worked on when I was in college. Okay. Lucky enough right. to have... So um, the Royal Nonsuch is, I guess, the big takeaway... Go out, buy it, read it. Hilarious, yeah. It was, I mean, it was published okay. almost 10 years ago. So be the 10th and 11th person to buy it. No, <laughs> thank you 12. so much for having me on this. Our pleasure. Yeah. Really it's phenomenal. Fun to thank catch you for being on the Thanks for tuning in to the All Things Video podcast. I'm James Creech. We'll see you next time. Bye.